Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Danny Luru, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is the great Sam Vecini of The Athletic, college basketball, NBA draft expert, NBA expert as well. And we really do cover all of those during this podcast. We talk about this draft class in the lens of the fascinating trade deadline, a little bit about where the league is going and some positional ideas I wanted to bounce off him. So a lot of really fun stuff here. And this episode is brought to you by Bet Online. You can use the promo code CLNS50 to get started with a 50% welcome bonus. You'll hear more about that in just a bit. But first, Sam Vecini. Thanks so much for coming on. Danny, I'm just so happy that you finally acquiesced to my request, uh, my one negotiation tactic for coming on this show. It is that we do the entire episode shouting each other back and forth like Stephen A. Smith and Mad Dog Russo. Thank, I'm so glad. Thank you for being willing to do this and being willing to give the listeners of Real GM Radio such an enjoyable time. I'm actually not going to be recording for a week, so I could probably theoretically <laughs> do that vocally. But no, thank you. Uh, I I, I want to start somewhere specific. I know you and I, you know, we we bounce between talking about college and the pros, and I want to kind of bridge the two with a trade deadline thing that I'm sure interested you, which is yeah. David Griffin traded a pick to the Portland Trailblazers that is only conveying if it's five to fourteen. So meaning the Pelicans miss the playoffs, they can make the play in, they just can't make the final eight, and don't jump into the top four in that case, and. Typically speaking, I'm a big supporter of those kinds of picks. You know, generally, I'd rather have one pick in the late lottery than two pretty late firsts just because you it's hard with roster spots and all these other things. But that is very context-dependent because it depends on who's available, like what, what the structure of the draft is. And so what I wanted to ask you is, let's say, theoretically, knowing the 22 draft the way that you do, do you mm-hmm. think that the calculus was the same? That a pick, like, let's say the 12th pick is more valuable than, like, 22 and 28. I do. I I think that it is much more valuable. I would imagine that the way that negotiation went was uh, David Griffin wanted to give up this pick unprotected or like, you know, only top four protected or whatever. And the Blazers probably came back and said, we don't love the talent level that is 15 to 30 in this class. We would like to 
protect this to try and get either a lottery pick this year or a pick that will be in the 2023 draft, which is shaping up to be better than this draft. Uh, I'll, I'll be honest. Like I thought it was a very creative structure that was intelligently based on the constraints of this draft cycle. I, I was just talking to our friend John Hollinger earlier today. Uh, he and I have you know, been going back and forth on just like uh, how much of a mess this 2022 NBA draft is. I would say that the range from five down to down to 12, I have like a pretty good feel. You can jumble those players kind of up in any mixture that you want to. I think it's a tier of player, uh, but you can jumble that mixture up almost into any, you know, ranking order that you want and come up with a solution that is viable. I, I might disagree with it, but I wouldn't like call you crazy. You know what I mean? That's generally yeah, get... like that. That's how I think of tears where yeah. I, I may have a disagreement in order, but I'm not going to fight you over it. Like that's probably the best description of it. Um, whereas if it's like this player is, you know, this one above that one. Okay. We have a real problem. That's, yeah. that's a different tier. And once you get to number 13, that's where I have absolutely no idea what's going to happen in this draft. Uh, I think there is a range of player that you could say from like 13 down to 40 right now. And that is insane. And I think that a lot of these guys like aren't anywhere near ready to play in the NBA. Like Kendall Brown at Baylor is the guy that I have at 13. He like spends half of a half, like not even really looking at the basket offensively because he doesn't really handle the ball super well yet. He can drive in a straight line and do some interesting stuff, but you know he's not consistently there yet, and he can't shoot. Uh, I have Tari Eason at 14. Tari Eason is a guy that has a catapult-looking shot who doesn't really dribble in the half court. He's a great defender, but like it's the level of player is different in this class. Uh, like Teams that I talk to, they, they tell me like, yeah, like we would love to get Kendall Brown, you know, at 21 or something like that. And I'm just like, I don't, I don't know if he's getting to 21 guys. Mm -hmm. Like why, why would he get there? Like I have Patrick Baldwin at 17. Patrick Baldwin is in the horizon league right now, shooting 36% from the field and 26% from three. Like I think there are extenuating circumstances. I think the team around him is a tire fire and like he's going to play for his dad. I don't know what kind of accountability is there necessarily. He looks like he kind of tunes out like halfway through games because they're, they're nine and 18 and they're terrible. But like the kid is going to have one of the worst combinations of production for competition level of a player drafted in the first round that I can remember at the very least, you know, averaging 12 points and six rebounds on 36, 26, you know, 75 or whatever his free throw percentage is uh, in the horizon league. Like that's bad. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I say all of this to say, like, I think that the protection that the Blazers and Pelicans came up with is actually really creative and really like interesting. And like one of the topics that I think we should talk about at some point 
is just that I, I almost am thinking of the 2022 draft as like this being like the pre-draft year, like the concept of the pre-draft where a team tries to convince freshmen that like aren't ready yet that could explode up the board next year to try and enter the draft. Um, a lot of the guys that I have on my board right now as freshmen, like I would call them essentially pre-draft candidates where these guys like aren't ready to play in the NBA. Like Blake Wesley for Notre Dame is like not ready to play in the NBA next year, but he is a very interesting candidate to try and take in the twenties because he could explode next year and average 20 points a game. It's just a very, it's a, it's a, that, that was a creative solution to a, a problem that a lot of teams are struggling with right now with the 2022 NBA draft. That is absolutely fascinating. One small correction, just because you and I are this way, they actually didn't have the pick go to 2023. The negotiation here, Griffin kind of won, I would argue, in the second part of it. Instead, what New Orleans is sending if they make the playoffs this year is Milwaukee's 2025 first-round pick, as long as it's not one to four. Now, we have no idea how how good the 2025 draft is. That's far too far out for any of of us to do. But Griffin probably basically said, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll put in the double-sided protection but you're not getting our pick next year and yeah i think that was smart yeah yeah. and and double-sided protection there are a couple different tools that we've been seeing general managers use to kind of bridge value gaps and one of them is double-sided protection where the oftentimes it's the team that actually has the leverage in the first place in this team in this case it was the team trading cj mccollum the best player in the deal to say well we want to mitigate our risk too yeah we understand you not wanting to give up a top four pick nate and i were doing a Ghost of Trade Deadlines past podcast a couple days ago we talked about that <laughs> mo williams baron davis one where basically neil o'shea who was then the gm of the clippers gave up an unprotected pick when he should have lightly protected it that ended up being kyrie irving and so it's it's kind of understood now that if unless it's a situation where you're getting a star player or you just don't have enough picks that top four protection is going to be a part of the story and that does lead to complications in terms of first allowable draft and a bunch of stuff but generally speaking we yeah. know where things are going but what double-sided protection has done is it's become an invoke way for the trading team to mitigate some risk on there because maybe what you want what you're negotiating you think this guy's worth a lottery pick and you want to try to make the chances there now you do run into issues in terms of making sure the pick conveys in enough time for both sides in some circumstances you don't want it to extend five years into the future or something like that right but that's one really notable structure and the other one which this is not the first time it's happened uh, and just to just to cut you off very quickly in the middle of this i would imagine that not wanting a pick to extend out like at least their own pick to extend out in a deal could have played a role in David Griffin deciding that, you know, hey, you know, I'm under the pump here a little bit. We need to convince Zion that we're going to be competing here sooner rather than later. I don't want my pick to be out. I don't want to have um, restrictions on the picks that I can trade going forward. Let's move that 2025 Milwaukee pick instead. And I will say as Joe Cronin, I would have asked for some of the other Pelicans assets above this one, just because Giannis is there. Giannis is ridiculous. He should still be pretty good in 24, 25, but maybe that's the concession. And there's, I mean, for the Pelicans, 
tokens to not give up this pick for it to become the Milwaukee selection, they have to make it into the play and they have to be the nine or the 10 seed. I don't think they can get higher than that. And then they need to win two games. So it's yeah. it still is more likely than not as we are recording this, though the Pelicans have been playing a lot better for this pick to just convey and, and then the end of the story. The other, the other mechanism here that I really like, and it's only available in some circumstances, is what came to be in the Thaddeus Young trade. And so Thaddeus Young was not worth a first round pick in and of himself. You know, he's a, a wonderful player. I, I really like him. I think he can fit in well on a good team. However, he's just, you know, he's an expiring contract. He's just not worth a first round pick. The only way that he would be is if the team, in this case, the Spurs, would have taken on some really bad salary. Like you can, you could bridge it that way, just like you do others. Instead, what they did, and there's a parallel here with the PJ Tucker trade last year and yep. a couple of others is, okay, he's not worth a first round. So how about instead we swap a decent, but not amazing first round pick. We don't know exactly where the Raps are going to end up for a really strong second. And that gets you closer to the value. And so the idea of of each side mitigating some risk, trying to get to the, the fertile middle ground for value, there are actually more avenues for this. And there's something beautiful about both of these trades, because in some ways it's a lot easier to value draft picks than it is to come to an equal evaluation of a young player, which is another way that you yeah. could theoretically do this, because if a lot of times teams overvalue their own young guys, because they're the people who drafted them and everything else. So finding these other ways to make transactions mutually acceptable is fantastic. No, I, I totally agree with you. I thought that that was such a smart, creative move uh, by both sides, Toronto and San Antonio. I mean, I, I will say like I have like 10 percent concerns uh, for Toronto making this move specifically, because if I have one like very minor complaint about the Toronto front office, it's that I do not think that their contract structures are particularly good. So I wonder if they will get as much value out of the 31st overall pick, which is what that pick is shaping up to be as another organization. Like you look at the Gary Trent deal, that looks like a particularly bad deal for the Raptors right now because they only got two years of him guaranteed yeah, the, uh, the, plus player option. Sorry to um, jump in. The, the, basically they have been making the trade off of shorter contracts with player options yep. for a lower annual value. And yes. what I find so fascinating about that from Toronto's perspective is that's the type of structure you use if your team is not super good at developing and coaching players. Because what'll happen is OG Ananobi and Gary Trent and a few other guys, like if things go well, and I mean, Trent had this incredible January, then you still have the capacity to retain them with bird rights. But you are like, you're, you're, I brought up risk mitigation earlier. You're mitigating getting some risk of like a bad long-term contract but you're opening up brand new risk which is the player leaving earlier right and, and personally in the case of toronto given how good they are at everything else as a front office and they are absolutely exceptional like i do not mean this as a slight at the entire front office i just don't like this particular thing that they do um I would want the like contract control. I, I would want all of the team control that I can get on players because I think I'm going to do a good job developing them. It, it's a very interesting quirk. So I wonder if, you know, Delano Banton ended up with a two year deal in the second round last year. And early on in the year, it looked like that was kind of a disaster for Toronto because he was pretty good to start the season. Uh, and I would imagine that next year Del Delano might come in and end up looking pretty good. Right. Um, 
but it's it's just interesting that they were the organization that decided to trade down essentially from like 20 to 31 and move down 11 spots. I actually agree with what Bobby Webster said after they made the move. He said he doesn't see much of a difference between those 11 spots in terms of player value. I completely agree with him. Where the value comes into play is you get a guy on a four-year rookie deal as opposed to you know whatever Toronto gives this guy that they take at number 31 overall. It's intriguing uh, on a number of levels. I'm going to be fascinated to see how this Thad Young move works out. I think people kind of forgot this year how good Thad Young was last season. Mm-hmm. Like He was probably one of the five best sixth men in all of basketball. So I'll be really interested to see if he can you know, create an impact for Toronto that is commensurate with losing potential value in terms of contract structure, essentially, where then you also, you know, have the extra year before you get to restricted free agency. It's a it's a really, really interesting um, deal structure. Like, I, I'm, I'm fascinated to see what this entire with those two moves. I'm so glad you brought up the Portland, New Orleans move and the Toronto um San Antonio move, because I, I thought that both of those moves were absolutely fascinating just in terms of draft deal structures. Another huge dynamic of the trade deadline, which already ties in with the New Orleans Portland Portland trade, is teams in that kind of like play in fringe going in different directions. And sometimes this was yeah. the motivation or the impetus was players being out, like that Bradley Beal missing the rest of this year, which is so deeply disappointing. You know that I think that pushed the Wizards a little bit in a different direction. Also, getting that offer from from the Mavericks probably did as well. And Porzingis, who knows, he might he might be back. And then Indiana getting. Tyrese Halliburton shifting kind of to at least for now a different phase in this and you know Portland trading CJ obviously but then you have Sacramento and New Orleans in particular pushing more pushing more towards it and so what I one of the things I wanted to ask you I know you you spent a lot of time recently working on a mock draft is it's always fun like from an intellectual standpoint when teams kind of move into a different part of the draft we don't we won't know the actual lottery results for months now but have you kind of thought about about the Blazers and the Pacers and the Wizards, but especially the Blazers and the Pacers in terms of, oh, wow, they might have a top seven pick. This person makes sense for where they might be going. I tend not to dive super deep into team fit until we know what the lottery is going to be, or at least until we get like toward the end of the season and we know like what the lottery odds are going to look like. Sure. Um, you know, it's a team like Indiana, right? Like I, I would be fascinated to see them end up with a Jaden Ivy. Because I think that that is the perfect complement to someone like Tyrese Halliburton, like a super athletic guard that can create. Like I loved the De'Aaron Fox like fit in theory. It's just that it seems like De'Aaron, you know, didn't play up to his best playing next to Tyrese once Tyrese had uh, as much power as he did. Right. Like just given the pairing of uh, Demonis Sabonis and Fox, what we've seen from them so far, I think, has actually been pretty interesting. I think they're two and one and, uh, you know, their last game they were pretty horrible and Sabonis did not play super well but uh in the previous two games I thought both Fox and Sabonis played really really well so I'll be interested to see kind of where that goes um but like in the case of Indiana like I you know it's a draft that's filled with bigs and you know Indiana still has oh, no. Miles Turner and 
Yeah, I mean, the top of the draft is filled with a ton of bigs. So I, are we going to be set with another circumstance where uh, Miles Turner is on the trading block this summer because they get the number one overall pick and have to take Chet Holmgren? Like, I, I don't know. I would say, oh, they're they're not going to do that. But the Pacers, they've, I mean, Kevin Pritchard has made such a facet, like such a significant bet on, like the way I would describe it is best player available, but we don't really care if it's a, if it's a big, that's fine. Whereas like you and I for over the years have talked a lot about how we calibrate things differently and you know go after wings and so they have yeah. even after even after the trade actually so the deadline they technically added one first round pick so they have four youngish players that were that are center pretty much center only players that were all drafted in the first round and then they also have Tristan Thompson but he's much older who was also drafted in the first round so that's like with Turner and Goga Patate Isaiah Jackson and Isaiah Goga, Jackson yeah. and, and Jalen Smith Jalen Smith who based on like Jay Fisher's reporting a few others like they didn't necessarily intend to keep they were just open to it when that Tory Craig deal came past and that can work out but you can also run into I've referred to it like in, actually Indiana is a fast is it such a big test case for this with Halliburton and Duarte where if the guys can play even if they don't mesh together perfectly it can still work out reasonably well for the team it's a lot easier when they're perimeter players than when they're center onlys or at least close to center onlys like Sabonis and Miles Turner were but if that's the best player available, then it's probably going to work out for you. There are some real challenges, and I'm wondering... Well, it, it, Go ahead. As, as much as anything with Indiana, I want to bring up the, this idea, too. Like, how Toronto, I think, has turned it around as quickly as they have is that a lot of the players that they targeted after Kawhi left or kept or prioritized keeping are guys that profile toward playing well with a number one once you acquire the number one, yes. right? I think Indiana has done the same thing here. Miles Turner is the kind of player where like we keep mentioning him as a fit in 90 different other contending places because he's a fit in 90 other contending places and he's a great defender and he can shoot. He's one of the true rim protector floor spacers in the NBA, which is a skill set that is very conducive to winning in today's league. Tyrese Halliburton, I think, profiles as one of the best number twos or number threes in the NBA at some point. Uh, Chris Duarte profiles as like one of the best fourth or fifth starters in the NBA at some point because of his shooting and because of his potential to defend. Like, I think that that three person uh, essentially like building block as a franchise is such a great way for Indiana to set itself up going forward because once they can acquire that number one guy, like say they would have like, you know, say there was a Cade Cunningham in this class and they ended up at number one. There's not, but like say there was, um, they would be in such a drastically better position to pivot toward contention within two years than a team like Detroit was who had no shooting, who had like very little in terms of like team play. Jeremy Grant wants to be like the number one guy. Um, you know, like Sadiq Bay is just not like a super athlete. He's kind of the one guy that I think fits in this regard as being like the guy that can help guys uh, develop and, you know, could fit next to other players. Uh, Killian Hayes is just not that guy, right? Like uh, Cade Cunningham entered a not great situation in Detroit that I think led to some early struggles for him. He's since been incredible over the course of the last like two and a half months. 
But once Indiana gets their number one guy, they're going to be incredibly well positioned to pivot toward, you know, building a legitimately great roster uh, around that number one guy. And I think it's a really great way to build a team, to be honest. Like, I, I really love what Indiana did. I'm very interested as well. And Halliburton's fit with another great player is a part of why I liked him so much in the draft, because not every not everybody can be a number one, but some players who don't fit with them, some players who aren't number ones don't fit well with them. And that yep. can be a practical constraint. Maybe it's that they don't shoot very well or they're not. They well, don't it's have- like it's like Jaden Hardy in this class, right? Like Jaden Hardy uh, takes terrible shots all the time and is like so ball dominant that he either needs to be the number one or number two on the court uh, offensively at all times be it off the bench or be it you know as a starter or he's not an NBA player like there's just not really a way around it because he doesn't shoot well enough from three at this point and doesn't defend and doesn't have those team skills that profile well toward playing with other good players there are times especially with sufficient motivation that players with physical tools can get there but it takes yeah. it takes real work and you brought up the idea that some of these players aren't necessarily going to be ready in this class and that is that can be a positive that can be a negative i think it really depends on what that drafting team needs and generally speaking guys taken in the late first aren't going to help you anyway but you often want to in those cases have the confidence that there is a path forward and that can be a real challenge and sometimes you make those bets and that actually ties in with something else that i find notable about where the league is now which is some of the consolidation of draft assets so Oklahoma City just has an ungodly amount of picks and we saw Houston draft four first rounders last year and there are a number of ways to consolidate that and it's actually way harder to do once you've actually drafted the players but there is a, a practical constraint that Sam Presti is going to face probably not this coming year but probably maybe the year after that where you can have too many young guys you like yeah. and typically that next stage is losing players for less than their value and that can be okay i i've been a firm believer over the last few years that one mistake the teams have have made is it's okay to have 17 guaranteed contracts coming into camp as long as you have the wiggle room and then you just cut the two that aren't the best because inevitably somebody's going to disappoint but you have to be ready for those kinds of decisions memphis is actually another really good example of this as of right now that's the team i wanted to bring up actually yeah as of right now like memphis has a bunch of good young players on their team that don't play a ton and then congratulations you probably have three first round picks coming well and, and even this summer like they had to make sure. a like semi-difficult decision like do we keep Jarrett culver on the roster do we cut sam merrill um you know sam merrill's a guy that you know i had a top 40 grade on in the draft i think memphis actually really liked sam merrill it's just that like they had to make a difficult decision at the end of the day because they had too many young guys mixed with you know in the other part of this too is like teams that are trying to stay flexible with a lot of these young guys they tend to keep dead weight contracts on sure. their roster as well in order to facilitate moves that can get them into the mix for bigger and better players than some of these guys at the end of their roster right so uh it, it's a it's a tough dynamic and this is something that like you know i literally just talked on the podcast with matt penny yesterday about like you know th- this would be shifting gears and i don't know how much you want to do that but like a, a gr- young nba players that are late first round picks early second round picks 
they get disposable more quickly now than ever, first yes. and foremost, because there's just so much more talent Shout across the, the NBA Dallas right Mavericks. now. Yeah, like Dallas cutting both Tyrell Terry and Tyler Bay, like after taking them in the top 40, like that's a great example. Um, but talent gets so much more disposable now, and I wonder how many players, especially with the influx of name, image, and likeness money across college basketball, will be as willing to enter the NBA early as opposed to uh you know previous years where in order to get like any sort of real significant money they had to enter the nba and play professionally i wonder if the influx of name image and likeness money sees a couple of drafts where you know we get back to players entering the draft more so when they're ready to actually play in the nba or you know be good depth players that get a ton of minutes in the g league and succeed in the g league early on um and then, you know, be ready for when their opportunity comes in the NBA, as opposed to, you know, guys like Rob Woodard, who we knew was a uh, project in terms of shooting or Jamias Ramsey, who we knew was a project defensively. And both those guys just, you know, got cut by the Sacramento Kings, who loved having those guys on the roster up until the moment where uh, it became expedient to cut them to go get to Sabonis. The NIL element could certainly be a factor, and my line of demarcation hasn't really changed for players. It just can be hard to get a read on it, and especially based on what you're saying about this class, because for me, if you are confident that you will be a first-round pick, and they have some intel, but they can't have definitive intel, as you know extremely well, being a first-round pick, first of all, you get two guaranteed years, but also that third year is almost always picked up. Like That is a... It's rare. It does happen, but it's rare. And that that gives you a lot of money locked in. And also, if you are in some ways betting on yourself, it typically gets you to free agency earlier in your life, not necessarily early in your career, because rookie rookie scale contracts, you hit free agency after your fourth year, as long as nothing goes wrong. Whereas for restricted guys, it's often after your third, because that's how you because you can't if you get a four year contract, this is the Jalen Brunson issue. If you get a four year contract, then you're unrestricted teams don't like doing that anymore. So they usually give you three and then a maybe a team option or something like that. I, if I were a player, you know, like who is on that fringe and I thought there was at least a 75% chance that I would go in the first round, I would probably advise them to go. But part of the rationale there, and there are exceptions, is that you do get more money when you're higher up on the scale, for sure. Like the 30th pick makes roughly half the money in their first year of the 11th pick. But most of the time, the player who is going 30th or 28th in the draft, staying an extra year probably wouldn't propel them all the way to 11th. There are exceptions, obviously. But if it's, if you're comparing being 20, 28th one year to being 21st or 19th another year, financially, there are lots of other reasons that are in play. Financially, you'd be better off going to the NBA early, even with the NIL stuff. Yes, I think that's right. For freshmen, it gets interesting. Like, for instance, like I have written this before and I just put it in the mock draft, but like there were a number of teams that tried to convince Jade Nivey and Ben Matherin last year to enter the draft and tell them, hey, well, you guys will be first round picks if you enter the draft. And neither of those two had any interest. You know, Jade Nivey is a kid that you know, his mom is the coach at Notre Dame and used to be a coach with the Memphis Grizzlies. Like, you know, A, they're doing well. B, um, you know, they have great experience within the basketball industry and just know, you know, what a value 
proposition like that looks like and honestly know how to improve and knew where Jaden's biggest points of improvement needed to be. Um, and he's going to end up going in the top three or four. And look, I think that to some extent, Jaden is the exception to this rule. Uh, I think Ben Matherin is probably more the like likely positive outcome if things go right, where Ben Matherin's probably going to go somewhere like eight to 14 on draft night, I would guess. Um, probably would have gone something like 25th the year before. Ultimately, what it comes down to for me is more, are you emotionally mature enough to deal with the ups and downs that will befall you in the NBA? Like it's almost more, there's like a separate financial decision and a personal development decision, right? Like, and I actually think the personal development decision needs to take precedence because where we're at now in the NBA is even if you're a late first round pick, early second round pick. If you're not ready to go within 18 months, I would say, of being drafted, um, if you're not ready to at least show real development and growth and show like, you know, maybe you don't have to be an immediate contributor. Maybe you don't have to be a guy that even steps in your second years and is a contributor from day one of your second year. But you need to show continued growth and development uh, and show continued interesting signs, I would say, within 18 months of being picked to where NBA teams and the team that drafts you can at least foresee a world where they're not wasting their money or in the case of the Kings guys where they don't just see you as a mechanism to essentially upgrade the roster in other ways. Mm-hmm. I, I think that that's where it gets really tricky. Um, if we're talking like purely on the financial side, I completely agree with you that it's better to get to the NBA sooner because the rookie scale is just such a fraction of the money that you can make if you're successful in the NBA. But because the rookie scale is a fraction of the money that you can make when you're successful in the NBA, I think it's almost better now to be ready to play in the NBA sooner rather than later. Like Desmond Bain, you know, could have like Desmond Bain declared for the draft both after his sophomore and junior year. I, I would say he probably could have been a two way, uh, after his junior year, like it would have been pretty close, uh, whether or not he would have been like an uh, E10 guy or a two way guy. And I think he really did consider ending up going pro uh, after that junior year because a lot of his teammates left TCU. And he ended up going back, ends up rising into the first round, ends up improving as a ball handler, improving just some of the skills necessary to be successful early on in his NBA career. And I think in part because he waited, he set himself up with an easier road to be successful in the NBA, set himself up into a better situation um, with less pressure on him to go be successful immediately. And he's now going to be, I mean, Desmond's going to make a hundred million dollars in his NBA career. Like no question about that. I think it's just whether or not, you know, he continues to show growth to where he's getting a four year, hundred million dollar deal, you know, when he's extension eligible in 2023, like, uh, that that's the kind of growth that, uh, trajectory that he's on at this point. So 
I, I think that as much as anything, it behooves players to be ready um, to contribute within 18 months uh, of being drafted. If you can do that, I'm totally with you. It, it's just a complicated deal now, though, I think. Like, the talent level in the NBA is so high. Um, I think the lower-end talent level across the league is higher than it's been um probably since I've been alive, to be honest. I agree with you. And in some ways, those are pulling the same direction just because a player who's not ready to contribute in 18 months probably isn't going to be drafted as high. But they are, there are differences, and I'm happy you articulated them to get into that. We'll be back with Sam Vecini in just a second. But first, a message from betonline.ag. Football might be over for the season, but basketball is in full steam for both pro and college hoops. From all the latest odds, totals, player performance props to where the next fired coach is going to land, Bet Online is the number one spot for all your sports betting needs. Head over to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Just use our promo code CLNS50 to get started. That 50 is because of that 50% welcome bonus. And Bet Online is not just basketball. They are your source for hockey, boxing, UFC, plus Olympic coverage is best in the business. From sports right down to your Vegas, favorite Vegas casino games, Bet Online is your number one online wagering destination. It's the fastest and easiest way to wager on all your favorite sports and play your favorite games. Bet Online, where the game starts. I wanted to ask you about a couple of players. This is sort of a similar exercise to what we did the last time you were on Real GM Radio, which yeah. is there are a couple of players who are higher on kind of on, on I know your your mock draft isn't out as we're recording this, but are higher on your your last big board, which came out in late January, that I, I was less familiar with, and so I thought we could walk through them a little bit. And the first one seems like there are so many of these guys that are Big Ten. Johnny Davis of Wisconsin. Yeah. It's funny. When I talk to NBA teams about Johnny Davis, the first thing that comes up is essentially like, man, we would love to have Johnny. Johnny Davis on our team. We we really respect uh, how tough he is. We love how um, it seems like you just can't rattle him. And obviously he's you know averaging twenty points. He's a three level shot creator. He defends like you know he's a six foot four to six foot five shooting guard. Like there are so many different things that he does super super well. But man, we don't want to take him in the top five. <laughs> Like there's just that level of dissonance in this draft to where um, is that is that physical profile stuff? Yeah. I mean, look like Johnny Davis is I I would venture like something like six, four to six, five. Like he's more if if we're calling him if he's listed at six, five, he's more on the six, four side of the spectrum than the six, six side of the spectrum. You know what I mean? Right. Um, not super long. So, you know, one of the concerns the teams have is, or, uh, one of the, yeah, one of the concerns is that these guys that have defensive value in college that don't have these like super measurements, right. And aren't, you know, elite level athletes. Johnny's a really good athlete. He won't be like a below average NBA athlete by any stretch of the imagination, but he's not going to be, you know, some super wild explosive athlete either, what kind of defensive value will you be getting out of those guys uh, at the next level? Is it going to be the same as like Johnny Davis, where he's like a borderline, you know, all big 10 level defender as a guard, right? Or is it going to be more like, okay, he doesn't get taken advantage of. Like he, he doesn't get, you know, wrecked on the perimeter. He doesn't, um, you know, he's switchable. Like we can, if he's down on a four man, like we're not going to get obliterated. Uh, he might give up an easy look because he's just, 
just not long enough, but he'll battle and fight. Like, I don't think teams are going to be trying to switch their best opposition players onto Johnny Davis to take advantage of him. But he's probably not going to be like some super plus just because you look at the guys that are elite level defenders around the NBA, OG Ananobi, Mikhail Bridges. I mean, these guys are freak show measurements wise, right? So it's... You know, when trying to project these guys, and I think even Ochai Okbaji like falls into the same bucket. And I think Ochai is, you know, again like a really, really good on-ball defender who's strong, who's 220 pounds, who can um, match up with a variety of different players. He's just six foot five with a six foot seven wingspan, and it's hard to be an elite level defender when that's the case. So, um, you know, going back to Johnny Davis, he can create his shot from all three levels. He can get to the basket. He loves, loves, loves mid-range pull-ups, and he is is getting better. Uh, He's getting more comfortable, getting more confident shooting threes, but he's also shooting 32% from three in big 10 play. And when Mm -hmm. you throw in like, okay, you know, guy who's improving as a shooter, but not quite there yet in terms of consistency guy who doesn't have elite level measurements and probably won't be like a genuine high level defender. What does that look like in the NBA? I guess like is is he like a real difference maker or is he just like a starter and, and like a solid you know starting caliber two guard? I, I don't. I, I think I tend to fall more toward the latter that he's just going to be like a really good starter who probably makes nine figures in his NBA career and is you know, a valuable piece, but NBA teams still really do like to hopefully go upside hunting in the top five. And, um, it's why you see someone like AJ Griffin, uh, you know, have so much excitement building around his name now within NBA circles. Um, he, he just has all of the measurements, all the athletic tools, all of the, uh, shooting ability that you look for from, you know, hopefully high upside wing creators. I also wonder how it works in terms of like general managers. Often, often you're picking in the top five for a reason. You know, t- things didn't go well either for that season or overall. And at times, picking a project can actually buy you more time because oh, okay, well, you know, like it's this this guy. It's gonna it's gonna take a couple of years for him to figure it out. And so then maybe by then one of your other players hit, or maybe that player hits. Whereas a lower upside player gets you it can get you into trouble faster is is probably the way that the way that i would put it which is really really interesting um and i'm not sure and and it depends on what you have on the roster already as well obviously and and something else that's i i one that i'm interested in i haven't i'm not particularly familiar with davis is like last year played 24 minutes a game took 36 threes the entire season like that is to me that is more of a concern in some ways than than shooting 33 percent on them maybe that was with context that was he was a small role within the offense he just wasn't taking that taking that many shots period but it makes you wonder like you know i'd have to watch a lot of his shooting motion to be like okay is there something more projectable here i I do think it's projectable like there's nothing all that broken within the shot but like sometimes with guys like that too you can come into worlds where teams are like okay there's nothing broken with the shot like i you know we're gonna be going in and look he has like a couple things like he could you know stand to like he has just like a very very small hitch that like he could stand to like iron out at the top of his shot right like so i I don't necessarily mean johnny davis when i say this but like um johnny davis or like people like this uh who shoot 75 percent from the line and 33 percent from three and if they don't have any discernible like problems with their shot teams might just be like well he just might not be a great shooter right like what 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 do we fix here what what is our 
you know, he can rep out as much as he wants, but if he doesn't have just like that natural inherent touch, he might not, he just might not have it. Right. And I think Johnny's fine. Like, I don't think Johnny's one of those guys. Like I think Johnny will be able to shoot, um, you know, at a reasonable level, but there's also a difference between being able to shoot 35 to 37% from three and being able to shoot 37 to 40% from three, right? Like over the longer stretch of, you brought up Desmond uh, Bain. That's the NBA, right? Like Desmond Bain is an elite level shooter. Whereas, Someone like, you know, I'm trying to think back through the last few drafts. Um, God, like it, it, you know, names end up riding through my brain like crazy. Um, someone like Johnny Davis, though, like might be more in the 35 to 37 range. And, you know, you end up having to expend a top seven, top nine pick on Johnny Davis. Whereas with Desmond Bain, you can get a guy that you can trust to knock down 40 percent of his threes, you know, and provide similar level defense at you know 30th overall is and look i think that it was crazy that desmond went 30th overall i think i had him at like 18 or whatever but like um 18 was even proven to be too low right so um it's it's fascinating just trying to like figure out all of the many disparate parts of uh this draft class particularly where uh, a lot of the players we're talking about in that 5 to 12 range I do see more as just like hey this guy's probably going to be like a good solid starter like I, I don't see you know the crazy upside with like Ochai Ogbaji who I really like and I think I'm a little bit higher on than most people um having him like number 11 or so on my board number 10 number 11 uh just cuz he's a you know 20 point per game scorer at Kansas that averages uh 43% from 3 on 7 3 point attempts a game and plays reasonable defense can't really handle at a level where he's going to be you know creating all of these awesome shots you know he gets out in transition and kind of drives transition play from time to time but like you know he he might be more of just like a 15 point per game guy that plays solid defense and shoots you know 40% from three and you know, those guys are valuable. Those guys are starter level players in the NBA, but like it, that's probably his ceiling. I think if it all really goes right and the floor is more like, okay, yeah, this is like 10 points a game. He's a passing liability. Uh, the defense doesn't translate quite as well, but he's not a liability, you know, more of like a seventh man that knocks down 38% of his threes consistently. And, um, you know, doesn't really shoot off a movement and is like a great fifth guy to have out there on the court. It is a significant disparity and having players like that potentially go in the top five is a different kind of challenge. I want to ask you about Benedict Matherin. I might have mispronounced that. You you invoked him earlier. I know a little bit about his story. Haitian descent, grew up in Montreal, then played for the the NBA's academy in Mexico City. Is that right? Yep. And then ended up at Zona. Yeah, that's right. Um, Really interesting players in terms of his game like six foot six you know six eight six nine wingspan like not crazy long really good athlete uh last year was purely a floor spacer like you you wanted him space the floor and you wanted him running out and transition to try and space the floor right uh you know what what didn't really get the most out of his tools on offense this year it's clear he's been in the gym and has added the ability to attack closeouts in advantage situations. He's still not like running ball screens and making high level passing reads or anything. But when teams overplay the jumper, he now has the wherewithal to be able to like take two dribbles and jump stop floater or take two dribbles and like get all the way to the rim and dunk. He's a good leaper. He has good speed. Like uh, athletically, there's nothing really wrong there. Defensively. I I don't love him to be Mm. honest. Uh, The tool, 
rules there are all good. And he just seems to like, I don't know, maybe this is like 10% unfair, but like, it, it seems like he disengages from time to time on that end. Uh, he doesn't quite lock in as much as you'd like to see someone with his tools. Uh, in the NBA, he's a he's like a floor spacer. It's more the role that he was as a freshman. And I think he'll hit pretty damn close to 40% of his threes and he'll attack closeouts and score in advantage situations, score out in transition, be a great running mate for a good point guard or a good lead ball handler or a grab-and-go option in transition. Um, whether or not he is a super high-level starter in the NBA or you know just like a good floor spacer in the NBA – is going to be dependent on where the defense comes in. Uh, he, he is another, he's a very much in that same boat as Ochai Agbaji, where like he could average 17 points a game, shoot 40% from three and provide real defensive value if things really go right. And he, I think he's even a better movement shooter than what Ochai Agbaji is as well. Like he can you know, come off of flare actions. He can come off pin downs and he can set his feet and knock down shots. Like he, he is an impressive shooter, but there's just something missing there defensively where if he's not going to be totally engaged all the time and teams can't rely on him to be an, uh, you know, a legit plus defender, I, I worry just a little bit about it. Like he's definitely going to play in the NBA for a long time because the shooting is real and the athleticism is real. But like, I, I, you know, this is another guy where I think I'd project him as a starter, but you know, th- there are some flaws here that could hold that back. What concerns me about that, you know, hearing the walkthrough is Matherin is not the highest usage player on a very, very good team. So you wonder, like Arizona, as we're recording this, they're 22-2, and two, I believe. And so yeah. the motivation to work on that end has to be there. You know, the team is competitive. You you aren't, you aren't burning the candle at both ends as aggressively as some guys are. And yeah. so it's kind of like, well, okay, well then what is going to kick that into gear? I think there's definitely something there. But also, as we talked about earlier with Johnny Davis, the challenge of betting on physical tools versus betting on somebody who delivered and might not have them at the same degree like there are there are various players that kind of needed some time to figure that out or the coaching and the technique and all that type of stuff and I I don't know how this year's Arizona team is or I mean sometimes it just takes longer for a player to quit it doesn't have to even be something nefarious of oh their college coach was terrible and that's why they didn't do it so I'm yeah and and in the case of this Arizona team I think this Arizona team is one of the three most talented teams in college basketball like they are they're awesome they're so so good (laughs) like genuinely I don't enjoy watching a team in college basketball more than I enjoy watching this Arizona team and it's in part because they have four pros right like I I wouldn't read too much into the fact that like his usage rate is slightly lower than Jolas Tubelis because uh, you know Tommy Lloyd comes from the Gonzaga tree and you know part of that is getting all these duck ins and running some high low actions with you know the centers and things like that so you know he he's a really really good um he, he's like at the top of scouting reports for opposing teams sure. for sure and, and i think that that probably plays a role in disengaging on defense too like he, he won't be as uh, counted on offensively in the nba as he is at arizona so it's it's hit or miss when trying to figure this out. But like this is why it's not an exact science and why people like fuck up in the draft all the time, including myself. Right. Like it, it's just really hard to navigate all of the disparate parts that go into an evaluation and then valuing the right things within all of those disparate parts. 
Right. And a lot to consider. Last guy I wanted to ask you about is the, I guess you call him the newest addition to the 2022 draft class, which is Shaden Sharp. I know I've yeah. heard his name before, but it also, yeah. see, I also don't think I know much about him. Yeah. So Canadian kid who came to the United States uh, three years ago, something like that, played at Sunrise Christian kind of emerged there as like a solid four-star recruit um mostly because of athletic tools like he was a pure tools play at like six foot six with a 611 wingspan and like he's been that size for a while what happened was he has become just like a hyper elite pull-up shooter um he's you know ended up moving to a high school in arizona and played uh this summer for if i remember correctly you play uh on the au circuit was the best player at peach jam um which if you remember this was the first year that nba scouts were allowed to go and see peach jam uh in person and the nba did that because they wanted uh more eyes on high school kids because of some of the events that were canceled in 2020 and in early 2021 so you look at what Shaden Sharp can do, he can create separation to get to his step back whenever he wants. He is a really, really good pull-up shooter. He is a very good finisher off of cuts and off of advantage drives because he can uh, just kind of blow by with real burst and athleticism. Uh, this is not really like a Jaden Hardy situation. Like Jaden Hardy was more of like your typical top five, you know, top 10 recruit in the country who was six foot three and has some questions in terms of his efficiency and shot creation. Um, Jaden Sharp's just bigger and more athletic and like true wing size. Whereas Jaden Hardy is more like, you know, combo guard size. And those guys just end up like Jaden Sharp's floor is just much higher than someone like Jaden Hardy, who has struggled this year and hasn't looked great in the G league. Um, you know, Shaden Sharp, it'll be interesting to see if he ends up in this class. Uh, right now I'm not ranking him on my mock draft because, uh, his mother has told Kyle Tucker that, you know, I, you know, the, the plan currently is to go to Kentucky next year. And John Calipari has said like Shaden Sharp has told us the plan is for him to be at Kentucky next year. They keep softening that by saying the plan is, as opposed to like, he'll be at Kentucky next year. But you know what? Like I, I'm taking him at his word right now. And, uh, you know, I'm cognizant of the fact that very few players who are top 10 picks in the draft, like, and he'll go somewhere in the top 10, like no question. Um, I'm very, I'm cognizant of the fact that those guys almost always declare for the draft. And yeah. it's very rare to see people not declare when they're going to be selected that high. But, you know, I, I think it's also just worth taking the kid and his family at their word. And, you know, until we see something different, uh, just kind of roll them with it that way. Yeah. And I mean, it's such, it's such an unusual kind of opportunity for him to get, to get this midstream. And when I, you know what though, too, like I do want to mention, cause the word opportunity just kind of jogged this in my brain. Um, I think he's eligible for the draft. Like I'm pretty sure that they would get it done. Like the fact that John Gavoni reported this, like, you know, and, and like made as big of a deal out of it as he did, you know, when it had just kind of been bubbling underneath the surface, uh, you know, of draft communities for a while. The fact that John like made that big of a deal out of it, like made me think that F- few people dot, probably... few people dot the rise and cross their T's quite as quite as well as Jonathan Gavoni. Yeah, and John's great. Like I, I don't mean what I'm about to say, like in a questionable way. 
Um, I, I do just mean to say like Shaden Sharp has not like declared for the draft yet. Sure. Once he declares, the NBA will look through his transcripts. They will confirm that his high school graduation occurred at least a year or like before the start of this NBA season and that everything is clear there and that he wasn't still enrolled in school uh, before this NBA season began. And until then, it is somewhat difficult to say yeah. like he is a hundred percent eligible. I would imagine he is, but like it's, it's worth putting on that qualifier saying like we are not 100% unequivocally certain that he is eligible for the draft. Important to note, of course, I wanted to, this doesn't necessarily need to be the end, but I, so I was trying to think of where I heard Shane Sharp's name and you mentioned that he's Canadian. So this was a dumb place to look, but I went back to the feels like a lifetime ago that uh, team USA event I went to in Colorado Springs in October of 2019. Yeah. And I have, have for you know there are many things that i've forgotten i'm just going to read this to you verbatim i forgot i've written this this is funny it was in a piece that never i never finished and never got published at the athletic i so the first part of it is about josh christopher who was my single favorite player that i saw at that camp this is the section on number two and i forgot every single word of this Jabari Smith Jr. struck a balance that provi- that proves challenging for players far more experienced. Have the perimeter player tools in the toolbox, but still use his size to take on big man responsibilities like rebounding and shot blocking. A smooth jump shot and handle and are, are rare enough for someone six foot eight, especially just 16 years old. But Smith Jr.'s mentality could be incredibly valuable if it holds. An interesting question is whether uh, physical growth between now and his peak will make some choice will make some choices for Smith Jr. or whether he can maintain that exterior interior split, even if he ends up six foot ten or taller hopefully he does i would say you nailed that i'm pretty That's, thrilled uh... with that i when you meant when you mentioned him as a riser i had totally forgotten that a lifetime and a half ago otherwise known as two years ago i had seen him in person and loved him yeah no i mean a, a lot of the people that saw him in person did absolutely love him um the, also in, the next in section is on way. how much on how much i loved evan mobley but yeah but everybody knew that you yeah, yeah yeah but what i think you specifically hit there is exactly what makes jabari smith like such a valuable prospect in my opinion it's that he does have that sense of unselfishness the shooting ability the defensive ability um the big skills at the four position that will be complementary to the five man as opposed to like he you hit the balance of why he is such a fascinating player in a number of ways um that profile toward him not just being a good college player and a good NBA player that could be a star, right? Like we absolutely think that that could be the case for him, but you hit the balance also of like why he could be a good complimentary player early on while he works his way into stardom, I think. And that that's a big part of why I really like Jabari Smith as a player. And when I was rereading that, having not watched any Auburn film of him just yet, it strikes me that a player with those, with those kind of fundamentals makes sense so many different places because Odds are, I mean, this ties into one of the most frequent points of discussion that you and I have had on all of our many conversations is that wing sized players or taller than non bigs, let's put it that way, like big, big, bigger guys. And I think Smith can be other things from what I understand of where he is now. You can fit them together in a lot of combinations and permutations. And you can use that kind of skill set if the guy can shoot, if they can handle a little bit in different ways to succeed. And that is a huge part of the sales pitch for somebody who is just 
just a little bit taller than those six foot four, six foot five shooting guards because yeah. they can often be multi-positional defensively and because they can be multi-role offensively. And yeah. not everybody needs to be Hardy or LaMelo Ball or like these types of players who, you know, they some, some players, that's a good thing. You know, you need to have the ball in your hands to be successful and you're good enough to have the ball in your hands, like that sort of thing. But you run into this situation and like Kawhi is such a fascinating example here. And I'm not comparing those two players at all. I haven't watched Javari Smith since this forgotten notes on my thing is that yeah. it often gives teams the ability to use you differently at the start and then at the finish, which can be very useful for a player's development. I am not one of those people who thinks that NBA playing time is the end-all be-all. That's the only way to develop players. I am firmly against that idea. I've consistently been that way. But it can be useful for high-end players to get some of those reps and develop into something different, which is generally latitude more frequently given to larger human beings than smaller human beings. No, I think that's absolutely right. And I think that it's just because they have an easier time defensively. Yep. Like at the end of the day, like it's just way easier to get a bigger guy on the court defensively and not have that person be a liability as long as they can move. Like ultimately being able to move is the first precursor that you have to have here, right? Uh, If you can't slide laterally, you know, you're just a liability in today's NBA at the end of the day, um, unless you're seven foot one and you're just like a super giant and can protect the rim at an elite level. Um, bigger guys who can slide laterally and who can take up bigger swaths of the court, particularly in help situations, frankly, like being able to rotate across the court, being able to uh, fly around like that's a, such a significant thing here. I mean, I am just a. Uh, it, it's much, it's much, much, much easier to get those guys on the court than it is to get, um, you know, even Kennedy Chandler, someone who's six foot, 175 pounds, uh, who just can't contest anything in help situations, uh, or even someone like Johnny Davis, who's six foot four, you know, with a six foot seven, six foot eight wingspan, probably. And, um, you know, we, we've even seen guys like that kind of struggle a little bit, uh, you know, in, in help situations when they have to fly around the court and do a lot of different things. I wanted to throw one more idea at you. I haven't started writing the piece on this yet. I'm I'm still honing it. Like I have a process for like bigger picture ideas that I generally often these things go from thought to piece over about a month. But it's this idea, and John Moran is the original. Man, I, I, I should do that. I, I should I should take a month to write things. Uh, I just never do. <laughs> it sounds yeah, like such I, a I nice wish I, I wish I could process. do uh, more often. And sometimes they turn into podcasts or, or other or other kinds. But here's the idea: we are at the point now where, generally speaking, you don't want your lead creator, whatever whatever we want to call that position. If you want to use the term point guard, even if they're larger than point guard sized, whatever whatever it is. That's why I like to use like primary initiator, primary ball handler, whatever you want to do. Generally speaking, right now in the NBA, it depends on what coverage you're using, but you don't want that player guarding their equivalent on the other team. And the reason why is because it they burn the candle at both ends. It can be very challenging. And more often than not, those players aren't good at it. And so it's like, well, why are we going to do that? And so what I've been working on in kind of my head is these players, I, I've used the term before reciprocal versatility, which is that you, we focus a lot more on like a guy like yeah. Ron Artest who can defend all five positions that 
that in order to properly utilize that, you need the other guys, even if they're worse, to be versatile too, because otherwise you just ask Roger Test to defend one guy because you can't have the other guys slide around. An example of this yep. is like Steph Curry not being terrible on twos so that when Clay was able to do that, he would guard once. And that ties in with this idea, which is player, because guarding primary ball handlers is a very different thing, like navigating screens, sometimes dealing with isolations, sometimes switching. It's a very different thing than being what Kawhi Leonard has been or what, you know, that that like dominant wing defender. And so what I've been thinking about is this positional niche that is player who is simultaneously good enough at defending those actions at an NBA level to be on the floor, but also is a good enough shooter that they can play off ball offensively. And it's actually a really hard needle to thread when you really think about it, because most of those players who are like, because most of the people who do well in those screening actions are smaller just because it's easier to do. There are some Matisse Thibel and a few others who are bigger. Marcus Smart is unbelievable at getting through screens. Well, Bledsoe is point guard size, so that works out for him. But, and Drew, of course. But that kind of niche... And Memphis came up. I mean, Desmond Bain is, is an interesting example. There are numerous other ones you get, but also they've used Zaire Williams for this a little bit. Actually, yeah, more Zaire's than a little bit. very good at, at it, this actually. point. And Zaire, by the way, is like not someone that I thought Zaire was pretty good defensively last year. Um, and I thought that like he would be a plus NBA defender. I did not see him as like a one through two defender right. early on. No, where I, like was, they're using him that way. Exactly. And so what I've started to think about is scouting and developing that kind of counterplayer. And like, so I brought up John Moran because he's the one who inspired it. But the other one is, what the hell do you put next to Trey Young? Like that is probably, because that was the other thing I did. Um, Nate and I did a fifteen sixty. I talked a lot about Kevin Herter. And I'm like, my, my eventual resolution is Kevin Herter is simultaneously a good basketball player who is going to become much better, but also a bad fit with Trey Young on a very competitive team because these limitations defensively, you need somebody who can shore up some of these things. And I'm like, that's actually kind of a hard player to find. And so what I was wondering yeah. is, this is kind of off the cuff for you. I'm, this is the first time I've said anything of this theory publicly. Is there anybody in this class, high or low, that you think, oh, that might actually be fit them pretty well? Yeah, you know, it, it is really interesting that you bring up the idea of Herder because I do think he is a good fit offensively with Trey, obviously. The problem is that he's not a good fit defensively with both Trey and Bogdan, who Sneaky has been like borderline disastrous this year on defense. He has. It's, it's a huge disappointment. Yeah, it's actually like a significant, significant problem for Atlanta right now. Uh, or at least it was. They kind of turned things around a little bit, but um, especially early and through like the first half of their season, it was a significant problem that he was very, very bad on defense. Um, you know, another guy that kind of fits your bill is like Gary Trent. Like Gary Trent's really, really good at kind of fighting through screens mm-hmm. and getting through a lot of different stuff and shooting and being elite that way. Um, the problem in this year's draft is I think this is a bad shooting draft in general. Um, part of that is because a lot of the prospects, you know, that, you know, I like and that many scouts like are just very young. Right. Um, and younger guys do not tend to be great shooters. I will say, I think there are a couple of guys that could develop this way. I think Dyson Daniels is probably the best perimeter defender in this class. Uh, he is six foot six. He can slide around. He gets through screens. Uh, really a really smart, intuitive defender, really high level passer and decision maker as well that I think profiles really well toward playing more of a secondary role. He can't shoot right now. It's kind of the sneaky problem. He just really mm-hmm. can't shoot right now. And it's hard to project him at the level to where 
uh, you're hoping that this person can be. Um, same with Trevor Keels, right? Like Trevor Keels, I think, does a great job fighting through screens and battling and taking on really tough on-ball assignments for Duke. But he's like a 33% three-point shooter that hits 67% from the line and has like a very squared-off shooting motion. Um, I, I think it speaks to your further point that there aren't as many of these guys, even in this draft class, that I think could profile to potentially be this than you would think. And like maybe part of this is teams should spend more time developing players in this manner. Especially because the high pick and roll feels like a foundational element of offenses for the next five to ten years. I can't yep. speak beyond that because if you look back five to you look back ten years, you see a lot of things that surprise you. And I mean, I, I feel old because I was covering the NBA then, but I remember it. And so, well, you, you know, it's it's interesting, like trying to figure out like who were the guys in the NBA right now that we would think profiles this. Like Gary Trent profiles is this to me. Um, he's not really a point guard. But he is really good at getting through screens. He fights uh, and he really shoots at an elite level. But you wouldn't really play Gary Trent at point either. Um, it's almost like what Fred Van Vliet was before his leap is kind of what you're asking for. Sure. Um, I mean, like the Anthony Melton, his, you know, last year was probably this. But like this year, the shooting has regressed again to more what I think he is as a shooter. Uh, Herb Jones is great at getting through screens and he basically is. every aspect of team defense. But like... You know, not a high, yeah, he's so good. Um, but like not a high leverage shooter either. Royce O'Neal's actually pretty good at this as well and, and does actually make shots. Like Royce is a little bit better on bigger guys, but I appreciate that he fights through screens and can take on tougher assignments. Um, yeah, these guys are hard to find, man. These guys are like, to, they can play point like even a little bit credibly. Like it, it's really hard to find these guys, I think. And not, not even like true point. I mean, part of this, you know who the perfect guy is for this. It's freaking Kyle Lowry. Like you're sure. asking to find like the next Kyle La- Lowry. Lowry. Lowry's so good though. He, de- he, he kind of breaks through multiple boxes because he's also so strong yeah. that he's switchable. And so you can, right. that, it's, a, it's another way that Miami kind of just throws the mold out because like we can do whatever the hell right. we want because oh we're, we're we're just gonna get guys that can do man-to-man and play zone and switch and we'll, we'll be fine <laughs> we'll just yeah. be fine jo- josh hart's josh hart is pretty good at this like he fights at least um cody martin has hit 41 from three i don't think he's that good of a shooter but cody martin's another pretty good example of this because he can like, that, like handle a little bit on a secondary level is, that is a potential game breaker here is these these players that we're discussing don't have to be point guard sized like and in some ways i would argue it's better if they're not because oh no you'd prefer them to be like six foot five you prefer them to be six foot five six i mean hell if they're going to be zyra williams size that could work too and that it also to some extent it negate doing that it doesn't negate the benefit of having a bigger creator first of all there are benefits anyway like luca being as tall as he is and lebron and if you want to go further you can those guys being as tall as they are makes it easier to see other things and you don't have to do some of these things but i think the way that i'm theorizing this now is that you kind of treat all creators the same way that you treat all of those guys but maybe lebron because he was just such a monster in his prime defensively and simmons is kind of his own thing too but you treat you kind of treat them all the same way whether they're six foot one or they're six foot seven. Oh, that's interesting i don't know if i agree with that I, I mean there are specific strengths and weaknesses that you want to address and it depends on what kind of scheme you're doing but basically the idea is you kind of want to give trey young the same assignments that you were giving i was going to say harden but harden's so anomalous that it's probably 
probably not Harden. Um, you want to give Trey similar assignments probably to Luca, where he's not defending the other team's best player, and he's probably not he's not probably not defending the other team's best wing or their best creator. And off, most more often than not, those are not the same person. So, I, I agree with that, but your scheme's not going to be prob- the same necessarily, obviously. But yeah, the problem with that is that the problem with Trey is not just the on-ball stuff; it's that he gives you inherent disadvantages defensively oh, yeah. off the ball. Sure. That I agree with you in terms of like the on ball matchup, but even like someone like Jason Tatum, right? Um, Jason Tatum does not guard the opposing team's best player. Like he's essentially, you know, at times guarding like the third best perimeter player, but he's such a menace in help and so good at flying around defensively. Um, that he he can still be a part of your scheme that is working toward a positive outcome, whereas with Trey you're more working to avoid a negative outcome for sure and you know what i mean like that's more i absolutely understand what you mean i'm thinking of it more in terms of how you build a roster rather than the success of that roster you you know what i'm saying it's like it's more okay what types of players do you want to put around this guy defensively rather than how good is our defense going to be because yeah that is a challenge with trey young and to an extent with john morant and it's interesting like Lamelo ball has better positional size but he has his own flaws defensively which the hornets are seeing plenty yeah like he sees a squirrel in the stands (laughs) and runs toward it (laughs) absolutely and and so those are always concerns but what i'm the idea that I'm kind of dancing towards is that there are certain, and like I, was, I actually tweeted about part of this idea a couple days ago, which is like, there are as many defensive roles and niches as there are on offense. It's just, we, we we're still developing, at least I am, the terminology and the wherewithal to kind of get there. And the idea, the core concept is defending the primary action is so important that you there are some players who are so important that they shouldn't be in it. Unless they're LeBron, but he's a cyborg sent from the future to, to run basketball. So he, the rules don't. Yeah, I... I agree with that. I think um, if if you can avoid it, like it yes. gets so different in the playoffs, like sure, where sure, sure. And, but it, it, and it if just you gets so and, and so the, hard. The reality that you can't avoid it is why the utility of Trey Young as a playoff player, despite his team making the conference finals last year, is lower than some some other people. Just you worry about those defensive limitations. They did have a pretty fortunate draw overall. But I well, am, they had the they had the perfect draw with Philadelphia because. Philly struggles to take advantage of Trey and ball screens. And then Trey can actually absolutely like slice their guys in ball screens, basically. Exactly. Like it's that, that was just such an advantageous matchup for them. Yeah. I, the comparison that I made was that Hawks team, but they're younger. And I think they have, they, I'm not, and I'm not saying that they're doomed to what ended up happening to this team. The parallels between that Hawks team and the Blazers team that made the conference finals where you weren't one of the two best. You might not have even been one of the four best teams in your conference and you made the conference finals. And so that can be fine. You get that experience, you get that confidence, but it can also lead to unrealistic expectations and actually unravel worse than if you had just gotten knocked out in the second round. Yeah. Well, the big problem with Atlanta this year too is I don't love the way that their offense has been structured. 
Uh, and on top of that, like they just have slow defenders uh, on the court a lot of the time, especially when DeAndre Hunter was out. Like pairing Bogdan and Danilo Gallinari is just like defensive poison in today's NBA. <laughs> like it is so hard, I think, to manage with those guys on the court, uh, especially on top of it. Like, by the way, do you, was, do you know the Hawks' defensive rating when those two guys are on the floor this year? What is it? One seventeen. That's real bad. Yeah, that's like bottom two in the league. Like level might be the worst in the league level. And, um, and that is not with opponent shooting luck at all. Their opponents are shooting about league average on threes in those minutes. Oh God, that's a nightmare. Um, yeah, that's an abject nightmare. Uh, and then on top of it, like Clint Capella has been like a step slow. Uh, I think he was dealing with a heel injury from what I gather. Something like that. Uh, yeah. Coming into the year and looked a bit slow and like they, they just are always constantly a step slow. That's what it feels like when you watch the Hawks and it's, you can't be slow around Trey young defensively. You have to be swarming and be able to, cover for when he does get eventually beat because unfortunately like it's just hard for guys who are six foot and that like not long to eventually not get beat um and, and then you have to be able to like fly around in recovery once you're you know trying to scramble a little bit so uh it's you know it's just unfortunate uh that the hawks ended up in this position and then the cam reddish thing happens where it seems like he wanted out you know they, they've they have some things that they need to fix that you bring up to to kind of bring it back to your original point with Herder. It's funny. Like I, I think that Herder is a great fit with Trey Young if you can find the guy that you're talking about. Um, because I think you actually can play like Trey, that guy, and Herder. Like you could play Trey, Marcus Smart, Herder, DeAndre Hunter across your front four positions, and that would be a good defense, I think. Because Kevin Herder is actually like a really sneaky, smart off-ball defender and he's okay when he has to guard like the second or third best creator on a team it's more whenever you they they had him pushed up early this year and he had to guard like the best perimeter player and it was like oh kevin like sweet summer child you have no chance to stick with like some of these you know just creative you know freak show ball handlers right but when you reduce that down just a level to like that next tier down a ball handler i think he's actually pretty okay defensively they might run into problems just as you when you get into the playoffs and they're just a higher they're a higher amount of those really good players on one team but it would be yeah. it would be a worthy experiment and with with herder you could always just make him a little bit smaller of a spot in the rotation like he's re- he's reasonably paid on his extension it's not amazing but you have have kind of ways of working that out and i wonder how travis schlank is going to resolve this like it it feels like some of their issues are modestly easily correctable and some of them are not and how they do it and the the frustration for me well you know you know what the real shame is like the guy that would have fixed a lot of these issues is a guy that got traded at the deadline, Derek White. Like mm-hmm. Derek White would have fixed a lot of this. He could have helped. He could have helped a lot. Yeah. They have a better pick to offer than the Celtics did. They had the same salary matching with DeLon Wright, essentially. Um, you know, they could have thrown in a similar level, you know, Romeo Langford dice throw in Kevin Knox or um, 
Sharif Cooper or whatever you want to throw in, right? Um, you know, or frankly, they could have, you know, they, they could have made the deal work somehow, right? In that pick that is currently slated at number 13, uh, as opposed to Boston, who is currently slated and at the time of that deal was slated at like 18, I believe. They're now at like 20 or so. Um, you know, you would think that, that that level of pick would have stopped maybe Atlanta from being as uh or stopped san antonio from being as concerned about getting the future pick swap maybe yeah this, uh, that they the, got the, from boston if the first asset is better you're not asking for as much if anything for the second right so like they had a reasonable deal that probably like frank like if they would have thrown in you know like a 2024 pick swap or whatever when you're still figuring that you're going to be pretty good like they, they had an offer that would have been good enough to get the exact guy that would have fixed and a number of their issues. I, and, I, I hadn't thought of that idea. Now I am angry about it. And the the brilliance of that, it's it's funny because even though Derek White is still technically at his rookie scale contract, he's also a little, he's a little old for parts of the Hawks, but he's still plenty good. He's, is he still, I think he's on the first year of his extension. Oh, he might be on the first year of the yeah. extension now. He's the yeah, equivalent it, of Jason Tatum always being 18 years old. Um, yeah, because he's not poison pilled on the extension. You are correct. He is in the first year. He is in the first year of that extension. It is that yeah. it, it can be a hard deal to strike. And I was surprised just like it was that Sacramento gave up Tyrese Halliburton that San Antonio traded Derek White, even though I thought the return was totally reasonable. Like I thought if, if you're going to trade him, that is a totally, totally fine return to do it for, especially with that pick swap, because who knows where these two teams are going to be at that point. But I like the idea, especially in some ways, if you're looking for a specific set of skills, like you're look, you're not looking for a superstar. You're looking for somebody who checks these boxes and isn't a star because you're not going to be able to get a star. Right. To, instead of trying to find all that in a draft pick where it's going to take them a lot of time, get somebody who's been a pro for a couple of years and who maybe yeah. maybe the other team really likes them. That's what happened with Derek White. Not everybody has to be a second draft washed out in their first place. It doesn't have to be a Jarrett Culver situation it could be just a good player who's properly paid and incidentally Kevin Herter might be this player for another team he's just not that guy for the Hawks and those sorts of talent identifications are a really, really good way to do it. And and as the league transitions temporarily, maybe more permanently, away from free agency being a key vessel for adding high-end talent. And yes, that's more about the Kawhi Leonard's and Giannis's of the world rather than the Derek White's of the world. It's There are a lot of guys extending. There are a lot of guys mitigating risk now. Is that finding your player, finding the right fit... Does doesn't have to be an eventual process it can be something that you that you can get right away yeah uh i mean it's funny like atlanta um is a prime example of both sides of that coin i mean they part of the reason they were so successful last season is they had so much success in free agency the year before Mm -hmm. right where they go out and they get bugged in Bogdanovich who played such a critical role for them in the playoffs last year, um, get Danilo Gallinari. And then on top of it, uh, they saw the other side of that coin where they were able to retain Kevin Herter at a deal that I think is below market value, to be honest. Um, you know, getting him at, I think it's 464 is that number. I, I was stunned that they were able to get him. I think that if he would have entered the free agency market, uh, you know, we're probably talking about him getting 480 because uh, I think he's just what teams are looking for as a high level shooter who can handle and can hold their own defensively against secondary players like um, you know, it, 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 they're in a fascinating position. But, you know, 
Derek White would have been the guy that would have fixed a lot of their issues. And instead, he's going to Boston where he doesn't necessarily, I mean, he fixes a lot of issues for Boston because they needed an unselfish ball mover. But more than that, he accentuates what they're already great at defensively and they become even better with him now. Um, it, it's a, th- that team is going to be, I, I don't know if team, if people have recognized how fucking hard it's going to be to beat Boston in the playoffs this year. Uh, those games they're, are going to be absolute slogs. Those games are going to be awesome. They're going to be very good defensively. They're not going to beat themselves. They all move really, really well off the ball defensively. They have real rim protection. They have shot creation in Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. Like they are going to be very, very, very fucking difficult to beat in the playoffs. Um, there's they one might other, not there's have one enough other talent. huge component like, I want to bring up there, which is why their win streak and push is so important. They're not going to be doing it necessarily from a bottom seed now. And no. it's so much easier, not only in terms of who you could potentially face, that is a little bit of a question mark in the East right now with how uncertain some of these teams are, but also having home court and like they're, they're not going to have to be this feisty eight seed or scary six seed. Like they could could be the two they could be the three like they're in the same they're in this boat i don't think they're going to be the two but they could absolutely be the three yeah like i i would anticipate that they jump cleveland at this point and that's no disrespect to cleveland i think they're really good as well especially defensively um and we'll see what happens with philadelphia once they get james harden um but i think that boston probably ends up more in the four five game and if they do that that's i mean the whole east is going to be a bloodbath in the playoffs just because you're talking about like Brooklyn and Toronto, two teams that I think are going to be absolutely miserable to play in the playoffs as well for disparate reasons. Um, Brooklyn, the Kevin Durant is God factor and Toronto, just like the over aggression defensively and the switchability and all of the different like toughness aspects that they bring. Um, you know, tryhards can often falter a little bit in the playoffs, but they're built, I think, to be a tryhard that. There, could there actually also a cause some problems. That is extremely well coached, which can be harder yeah. to knock off than some of the others. Yeah, totally. And like Siakam and Fred Van Vliet are just absolutely elite right now. So like, um, they're going to be tough to play in the playoffs. I mean, those are your eight and seven seeds. Like Toronto and Brooklyn could very easily both beat Miami and Chicago if they end up as the one and two seeds. Uh, we'll see what happens with Milwaukee. Like, Milwaukee might just gear up toward like some crazy run here to close the season and get hot and try to get you know home court advantage through the playoffs that wouldn't stun me at all because they're good enough to do that the rest of the league should be scared that they're only two games behind in the loss column because nobody the league you could say in a way they had a chance to the eastern conference had a chance to run and hide and didn't and now i don't think the bucks are some like monolith that cannot be beaten but it's a lot harder to beat them if they have all of the other advantages and they are a strong regular season team that is basically right in line with it. It's they're kind of like if you were ever running a race against somebody who you knew had a really great closing kick and you were even with them three quarters of the way through and you're like, crap, if I wanted to win, I had to be a couple steps ahead of them because then they're going to pass me. And yes, injuries can hit anybody and it's possible that the bucks are going to get even more. But if it's only going to take like 53, 54 wins to have the best record in the Eastern conference, it's 
I mean, I, I think it's going to end up going to a very good team. Yeah, I, I think so as well. Um, this little all-star break here that we're going to get this weekend is going to be very beneficial for someone. And my guess is that it's very beneficial for the most talented teams. Uh, the team that's going to be most beneficial for is Brooklyn because sure. they, they just need Kevin Durant back on the court. Uh, and they're hopefully going to get Ben Simmons on the court as well, who I think is going to mesh really well there. Um you know, they're going to get uh, their talent actually back. Uh, Philadelphia will probably help as well just because Joel Embiid's going to get a rest and they're going to get James Harden on the court and that's going to help. Um, you know, Milwaukee, it'll probably help. Chicago, you know, they're beat up a little bit right now. Zach Levine obviously is hurt. Uh, Miami's in a weird spot where uh, they're just such a tough team. They're so fucking tough. They're, like, they're, they're, they're the, so good. All of these teams in the East, Miami is going to be miserable to play because they're tough as hell and they're built on that, right? Chicago is going to be really hard to play because they have DeMar DeRozan and Zach Levine as shot creators and that's just not something anyone's going to want to deal with. The Milwaukee Bucks are the returning champions. Cleveland Cavaliers are going to be miserable to play against because they have great defensive uh, identity and are a top three defense in the NBA. The Sixers have James Harden and Joel Embiid. Joel Embiid might be the best basketball player on earth. Boston Celtics are going to be miserable to play because they have the best defense in the league right now. Toronto is like a crazy try-hard team. Brooklyn has freaking KD. Like, all of these teams are impossibly good this year in the East. And like, I just, I, you could literally have a final that is like the six and the eight seed. If it's Brooklyn in the eight for some reason. And I would not be like completely blown away by that. That is one of the reasons, not the only one, why I am more excited for this post-deadline run than I have been for any year I've covered the league. There are a lot of questions that we need to answer. There are a lot of new faces in new places that we just need to wrap our brains around. Like, okay, the Ben Simmons-Brooklyn fit, okay, how how is this going to work? How's it going to be? And also, as you got into the some of the returns and the rest, where this has been a really challenging season, and an underrated element of that is the seemingly spontaneous absences. In certain cases, led to some players shouldering a really heavy burden for a couple weeks and never really getting a chance to rest that off. And you know, so like, let's say a third of your team is out with COVID, and you got all the time. Now, thankfully, no one is in the protocol at the moment like we're at a really nice point in the league but those miles are still out there and this is really that chance and there will be another one for some of these teams in early april mid-april to kind of get a sense of it and then also i think teams will really appreciate that aren't in the play in that stretch of time as well to kind of get things to get things ready but there is more to learn not this next week thankfully that will be rest and relaxation but for for us as analysts and of course for the for many of the players involved but also because of the play-in and because of the unusual structure particularly in the east there will be a lot to play for. and yeah there really will be and so you're you're not just like okay we want to get into a rhythm so we can do the playoffs no we want to get we want to get home court for this round or for the second round or for for everything we want to be right we want to integrate these players and so i mean you brought up brooklyn potentially being the seventh seed that's true but Brooklyn is also only a couple 
couple of losses behind like the four and the five. So if they can go on a run and also these teams are going to play a fair amount of games against each other. So there could be more variance there, even if these are 60% winning teams that is against an average opponent. And some teams inevitably have harder schedules than others. Some have makeup games, which other ones do not like that. It's there's a lot that's coming into play with this. And I don't know how it's going to go. And that's exactly how I want it. I think that's dead on in terms of just how much there is to play for. Like Brooklyn needs to get its shit together. Like, I don't know if you saw earlier today, but Eric Adams, the, um, uh, I believe he's the mayor of New York, uh, said that he is like considering how unfair it is that New York athletes are treated by different rules than visiting athletes. Um, and that he struggles with it. So like, will Kyrie Irving be eligible to play at some point? Like, I think that's a very real potential outcome that people need to start wrapping their heads around. Um, you know, and generally like they just need time to mesh with Ben Simmons and with, um, you know, Kevin Durant and Kyrie and all of those guys, like the Sixers are going to need time to mesh with James Harden and Joel Embiid. Uh, these teams, a lot of these teams made real additions to where these games matter now. Like all of these games really genuinely matter in such a significant way that it's going to be amazing. It's going to be absolutely amazing to watch. One more thing to throw into the mix, especially with the Eastern Conference, though there's a version of this for the West. Half these teams are going to lose in the first round. And I know some of those will lead to reckoning. Some of them will not. Some of them will be able to be written off. And unfortunately, inevitably, some of them will be due to injuries. So it's you don't have to reckon the same way and then another couple will lose in the second round and then only one team will make it out and that will be in an off season when they're I, I'm not thinking there's going to be a ton of movement that's the type of thing that could get that could get the wheels churning is if one of these teams just goes crap we're just not there yet and I mean I think that's a part of what you know Miami with Kyle Lowry I think that I mean Pat Riley just wants to improve anyway but it was yeah. additional motivation to get there and and those ripple effects are so hard to predict right now because it feels like it could be almost anybody. And then the other kind of elephant in the room now is, as they have been for seemingly time immemorial, I was talking about this with, with Matt Moore a little bit last week, which is, and Nate and I talked about it a little bit too, which is now that James Harden is on the Sixers, what happens if Damian Lillard, Bradley Beal, or a star that we don't know yet to be named later enters the market? Who who is who is bidding? Who is even interested? Who's in the place? And it could go all sorts of different directions. That's a really good question. Like I, um, that was the, one of the first things I, I can't remember if this aired on the pod or not. I asked this. I'm like I I because I personally think that Lillard would have been a better fit for the Sixers than Harden. All all things. I agree with you. Lillard isn't on the market. Yeah. It's like well, what do they do now? And the next could potentially get involved with some of that stuff there's also the what in the world's going to happen to Kyrie this summer is an under that's that's an underappreciated huge question because yeah it is Kyrie Irving after all but like well and like if, if this mandate is still in place in New York uh going into the summer and it looks like it's going to be in place next year as well which like I again like I don't know I don't know New York politics like that but like I'm sure that the Nets do and I'm sure that they have a feel for it like I mean he's definitely getting traded this summer there's no way that they're gonna like there's or, no way the player op- association will out, allow him to be a part-time player if Kyrie opts out what market is he stumbling into like it's I'm not saying nobody will be interested or anything like that but who is following you know I, I talk a lot about how free agency is about falling in love who is falling all over themselves 
to be the team to commit to Kyrie Irving. Somebody will. Inevitably, somebody will. I just don't know who. There is one team that doesn't have a crazy amount of assets, but I bet will be very aggressive in this. Dallas. I, I think Dallas... Yeah, I could see that. In part, tried to move Kristaps Porzingis... Uh, in order to set themselves up for a bigger move here coming down the road. I think Dallas is a very good team to watch here as they enter the extension portion of Luka Doncic's reign there. Interesting, interesting. You and I could go on for another hour 40, but instead we will leave it here. Thank you so much, my friend. Yeah, of course, Danny. Thanks again to Sam Vecini for taking the time to come on. You can and should read his excellent work at The Athletic. You can listen to the Game Theory podcast. You can check out his YouTube channel. And you should also follow him, if somehow you don't already, on Twitter, at Sam underscore Vecini, S-A-M underscore V-E-C-E-N-I-E. Absolutely love having him on and thought this was a really fun conversation. And part of why I love talking to Sam is that we can weave in the draft in the NBA and there aren't that many people who are savvy enough on both to make that happen. There definitely are others, but I I know Sam and he does excellent work. And I, I love being able to have that opportunity. Seeing the my own notes from Javari Smith was absolutely thrilling. I genuinely had forgotten about that. It feels like such a long time ago. And I knew I knew there were some players that I liked that I had in my notes that um, I'd forgotten and that it happens to be the guy who is now the, and a serious contender, let's put it, for the number one pick is pretty exciting. If you want to support the show, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can subscribe, download every podcast that is especially useful for a show like Real GM Radio, which will never come out on a specific day of the week due to my availability and guest availability. That's just not the way it works. You can also spread the word, social media, leaving a rating and review, or just telling people. Whatever whatever you think, if it's somebody that you think would like this episode or the show in general, helps other people find the show. We really do appreciate that. And then now that we have one again, which is so exciting, the single best thing you can do to help Real GM Radio is to check out our sponsor, and that's betonline.ag for this episode. Use the promo code CLNS50, and the reason it's 50 is you get 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. So hopefully you can check them out. This is actually a quiet time in terms of my other work. I was going to say you can check out these things, but we're not doing an NBA strategy stream Monday because there are no games on Monday. And I have some written work at The Athletic that's coming out, so you can take a look at that. I've just finished writing my team-by-team cap projections for 2022, so that should be out in the next few days, depending on when editorial gets to it. I know they have a lot of all-star content that will justifiably jump my piece in line as it should. And so the next time you hear me, I mean, dunked on, we're taking a little bit of a break. We'll be back middle of next week. Might be real GM radio, depending on when I, when I record and publish, I'm trying to take some real time off. So it might be later. And also if you're having any questions, um, we, we had this changeover on the, like the feeds and all of that. If you're running into any issues, please let me know. Uh, Danny LaRue, NBA at gmail.com. And one of the big reasons that email is better is that if you send an email, I can forward it to the people who can actually solve these problems as opposed to a tweet, like a tweet, which I guess I can forward in certain ways, but it's a little bit harder. So that's, that would be something that would be a big help to me, a big help to Real GM Radio. And so if you can do that, we're hoping that things are pretty good now. Like, for example, I use my own as a calibrator and I was having trouble, but now I'm not. So hopefully everything's good for you. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. Thank you.